Reina dedicated her career to helping Native people find resources when fleeing domestic violence. Her passion came from her own experiences as she tried to leave her own abusive relationship. But it was when she took steps to protect herself that she was the most at risk. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Thank you for tuning in for another week. As many of you know, I donate money monthly on behalf of the podcast to a variety of places, often either serving victims of crime or serving Indigenous communities. Sometimes I do direct relief through GoFundMes or other fundraising efforts. I used to not announce where I donated, but then I realized that when I did announce it, particularly on social media, it often led to others also donating. So now I'm going to advertise these causes monthly. And while I usually focus on people, this month's donation did go in a different direction. The dog rescue where I adopted my miniature schnauzer, Gustavo, is called Reno Ranch. And they recently responded to an extreme animal hoarding slash out-of-control puppy mill situation. There were anywhere from 50 to 70 dogs on this single property, all various ages and health conditions. You can imagine that just the flea medication alone needed to treat that many dogs could almost bankrupt a large rescue, let alone a little one like Reno Ranch. So I sent this month's donation to Reno Ranch, and I will leave a link to ways you can help them in the show notes, which includes where to send monetary donations, along with things like their Amazon wish list, and also a link to their vet. He very kindly works with them on costs and payment plans, so you can make a payment on Reno Ranch's account directly to the vet. For me, I just Venmoed money. That was the easiest thing on my end, so that is what I did. That was August's donation, and I just wanted to keep you updated with that and where the money this month is going. And now on to this episode. All sources are linked in the show notes as usual, but the main source for this episode is the TV show In Pursuit with John Walsh. This case was the first one featured in the first episode in 2019. And it is by far the most comprehensive and accurate coverage of the case up to 2019. I used a variety of news sources for 2019 to present day. So let's start with Jeanette Reyna, who was born in 1983 in Brownsville, which is on the southern tip of Texas. Her mother, Trisha, said that when she was born, she knew that she and her daughter, her only daughter, would be best friends, and they were. As Jeanette grew up in Houston, Texas, she and Trisha were very close, even through Jeanette's teen years. Trisha moved to Ponca City, Oklahoma, and Jeanette followed her there, enrolling in Northern Oklahoma College, where she studied criminal justice. While in school, Jeanette got a job at a nearby meat processing plant to help pay for expenses. It was while at work that she met Luis Frias. The two began dating, and Jeanette's mother, frankly, wasn't a fan of Luis. 
She didn't get a good feeling from him and worried Jeanette was really only dating him on the rebound. He looked a lot like an ex-boyfriend of Jeanette's, and Trisha thought that might be the thing Jeanette was actually attracted to. And that might make her overlook some red flags. But one of Jeanette's brothers told In Pursuit that Luis was quiet at first, but after they hung out a few times, he warmed up and things seemed fine. Jeanette's brother and his wife would even go out with Luis and Jeanette together and do things as couples. After a few years together, Jeanette had their first child. A few years later, Jeanette had their second child, and it was at this point that some in Jeanette's family realized that there were some serious issues in the relationship. While Jeanette and Luis would always fight, and often over his jealousy, these seemed to be verbal arguments at first. It was after the birth of their second child that her family learned the fighting had, at times, become physical. But like with most abusive marriages, they were in a cycle. After a fight and an incident of abuse, Luis would be sorry and he would ask for forgiveness. Then things would be good, full of love, and then comes the rationalization. If he wasn't stressed that day, or if maybe the kids hadn't been crying, or whatever it was, There would be a reason why it happened, and then things would go back to a comfortable normal until the next fight. Even with this turmoil at home, Jeanette decided to pursue her dream career. She had graduated with her associate degree in criminal justice and wanted to finally pursue becoming a police officer. She finished her CLEAT training, which is Oklahoma's Council on Law Enforcement Education and Training. They handle initial training as well as continuing education. She then applied for a job in Blackwell, Oklahoma, which is a city next to Ponca City. She applied in 2007. Jeanette passed her tests there, and the department was interested in hiring her. But there was an issue. In doing a background check, they found nothing in Jeanette's past. However, Luis's family had lived in Blackwell, and they had records there. Luis had a bunch of misdemeanors, the worst of which was a misdemeanor assault and battery charge. Most were minor and even nonviolent crimes. But his mother, Atocha, had a more serious incident from when she attacked a woman with a knife, slashing her face. According to Oklahoma court records, she also had protective orders that she took out on other people and ones that other people took out on her. So while Jeanette's record was clear, there were obviously some concerns about her common-law husband and his family having these legal run-ins. This wasn't a big town. Blackwell had only about six to 7,000 residents at the time. The chief ended up going to Jeanette's house and sitting down with her and Luis to talk this out. He said that Luis seemed 
excited for Jeanette to finally have the chance to pursue this career, and he didn't think there would be a problem moving forward. The decision was made to hire her. Jeanette's first arrest as a police officer was in November 2007. However, less than a year later, she resigned. As supportive as Luis seemed to be at first, his jealousy kicked into overdrive as Jeanette went to work day in and day out with other men. He started complaining she wasn't home enough and she wasn't taking good care of their children. But he didn't just make these statements to her in the middle of arguments. Luis made these statements to the chief of police. Eventually, Jeanette decided it just was not working out, and she turned in her badge. After she left her job, things at home did not get any better. Luis didn't need reasons to get angry and turn abusive. He just needed excuses, and he managed to keep finding them. There were a few calls to the police from Jeanette after Luis would put his hands on her. In 2009 and 2010, he was charged with domestic violence, and based on the ages of their children, Jeanette would have been pregnant with their third child at this point. Looking at the court filings for 2009 and 2010, I see things like child support and establishing paternity, so it looks like they were separated for much of this time. In May of 2011, Luis was arrested for violating the restraining order. But at some point, they did reconcile, though it's not clear how long they were apart. According to what her brother told In Pursuit, Jeanette knew how hard it was to not have a father around, and she didn't want that for her children. That made her vulnerable to any and all promises Luis made that they could be happy together again. After they had gotten back together in 2012, Jeanette found a new job that was adjacent to law enforcement. She worked in victim services for the Ponca Reservation as the director of their domestic violence program. Because Jeanette worked for the tribe, it is often reported that she was an enrolled member. Her case that we're talking about in this episode is even cited in a Supreme Court ruling about law enforcement in what used to be the Indian Territory prior to Oklahoma statehood. But her sister-in-law cleared this up with In Pursuit, saying that the Ponca people had taken Jeanette in as one of their own, not that she was an enrolled member. She was of Mexican descent, and after moving to Ponca City, she had made a lot of friendships and ties to the community there. Jeanette's connections were to the Ponca in Oklahoma, but there are actually two federally recognized Ponca tribes, one in Nebraska and one in Oklahoma. Neither started out there. The Ponca were originally from east of the Mississippi River between the Ohio River and the Great Lakes. They started moving west prior to European colonization and settled in present-day South Dakota and Nebraska. The Ponca were then impacted significantly by European diseases like the flu and smallpox, 
and their numbers declined rapidly in the 1700s. The Lakota then pushed into their lands as the Ponca didn't have the numbers to resist. Through treaties, the Ponca were allotted land for a reservation, which was then taken back from them in 1868 with the Fort Laramie Treaty. This is the treaty that set up the Great Sioux Reservation, which I think we talked about before in a different episode. And this Great Sioux Reservation included the land set aside for the Ponca. So the Ponca were then forced to the Indian Territory in 1877, and that is how they ended up in what is now known as Oklahoma. In the first year in the Indian Territory in Oklahoma, a third of the tribe died due to the ineptitude and possible malice of those organizing the relocation. They arrived too late to plant crops and were stuck in an area with malaria. Malaria is not really something we deal with much in the U.S. anymore, but it was once endemic here. But in spite of all of this, and in spite of all of the attempts to get the Ponca to give up their traditional ways, they didn't. They have hosted a major powwow annually starting in 1876 and continuing to the present day. Like I said, there are two federally recognized Ponca tribes, one in Nebraska and one in Oklahoma. The headquarters in Oklahoma are located near Ponca City, which is near Blackwell, where Jeanette Reyna had been a police officer. When she took this job with the Ponca Victim Services, She worked almost exclusively with women, unlike her job as a police officer. She helped people facing domestic violence find resources like housing, medical care, financial resources like food stamps, therapy, and so on. According to the National Institute of Justice, American Indian and Alaska Native female victims are more likely to need services when leaving an abusive situation, but they are less likely to have access to those services. The most common resources needed and not met are medical and legal. And that's really not a surprise because there are disparities in access to those services across the board within indigenous communities, not just for victims of abuse. But the Ponca have worked very hard to close that gap with the services they provide. Jeanette was working to help women get out of abusive relationships while she was in one herself. Those who knew her believe that this was one way she coped. It gave her relief. It gave her hope to help others, even before she was able to help herself. Jeanette was known in the office for being very professional and incredibly empathetic to those who were reaching out. And at first, her coworkers did not suspect what was happening in her own home. What they saw was the smiling family photos in her office, and they saw the flowers 
sent to her from her loving husband. But those flowers were being misinterpreted. They weren't the thoughtful touch they seemed to be. They were part of the abuse cycle, the remorseful love bombing used to convince the victim that things really weren't that bad and that they would get better. Jeanette managed to hide this until one day, Luisa's jealousy entered her workplace, just like it had before. Jeanette was working almost exclusively with women, but remember, Luis doesn't need a reason, he just needs an excuse. And he found some excuse to suspect Jeanette of talking to other men. So he broke into her office and went through her things. The police were called, but Luis left before they got there. This incident is where Jeanette's coworkers realized what was really happening, and they all rallied around her. They knew better than anyone all of the reasons why people don't leave abusive relationships. Not only did they know that, they also knew the right ways to support her. They saw the flowers for what they really were, and they realized that Luis calling to check in with Jeanette during the day wasn't a sign he cared, but really was a sign he was trying to keep tabs on her. One of these times was when Louise called Jeanette while she was grabbing lunch down the street from her office. He asked her where she was, and she said she was at work. He told her he knew that was a lie, and that she was actually out of the office at a restaurant. Jeanette told her coworkers about this phone call and said she did not know how Louise knew where she was. She didn't see him, but she assumed he must have seen her. But a bit after this incident, Jeanette was doing housework when she came upon an empty box. It was for some type of GPS tracking device. That's when she realized how Luis knew where she was every day. She searched her car and found the tracker attached. And it wasn't just this tracker. Luis had managed to get into her emails and read those. He even recorded some phone calls. As this coercive control escalated, so did the physical abuse. It became more frequent, with the apologies sounding more hollow, and the periods of calm were much shorter. Jeanette had reconciled with Luis for the sake of the children, but the impact of his abuse and control on her and on them as they were getting older was obvious. She made plans with her family and friends to leave in the summer of 2013. Jeanette secretly found an apartment, and one day while Luis was at work, her family and friends showed up and quickly moved her and the kids out of the family home and into the new place. Of course, this was not the first time Jeanette and Luis had separated, but everyone was hopeful that she would stay away this time. After all this time, she had completed training on intimate partner violence 
and had assisted dozens of women in getting out of their own abusive relationships. She wasn't as vulnerable to Luis's guilt trips and promises like she had been two years before. Luis, too, may have suspected this time was different. When he got home, he started calling and texting everyone, trying to figure out where Jeanette was and saying that she was not going to get away with taking his kids away from him. But Jeanette never intended to keep the children away from Luis. She just wanted to keep herself away from him. On July 30th, 2013, Luis filed for divorce. Though Jeanette and Luis hadn't gotten married, Oklahoma does recognize common law marriage as equal to ceremonial marriage. And the rules in Oklahoma are pretty loose. You have to live together in an exclusive relationship and present yourself as a married couple. There is no minimum time you have to live together like there is in other states. If one person denies there was a common law marriage, it can be proven through behavior. Did you file taxes together? Do you have joint bank accounts or assets? Did you tell people you were married? Like literally your Facebook status of being married could prove common law marriage in Oklahoma. But if both people say they are married through common law, it's pretty easy, and Luis and Jeanette had both presented themselves as married. Because Oklahoma puts common law marriages on par with ceremonial marriages, you do have to get a divorce to dissolve it. And after Luis filed, Jeanette counterfiled. On August 5th, the court ordered temporary shared custody of the children. The following day, Jeanette filed for a protection order against Luis. She told a friend she was afraid Luis would find out where she lived, and I bet that fear came because of the divorce proceedings. Her address may end up on papers that Luis would see. This order would also protect Jeanette at custody exchanges to keep Luis from seeing her during them. In situations like this where one parent has a protective order against the other or they have a mutual no-contact order, the children are often dropped off at a trusted family member's house, and then the other parent will pick them up from there. The temporary order was issued, and there was a show-cause hearing set for August 21st to decide if the order would be made permanent. But before Louise could even be served with the temporary order, two days later, Jeanette's mother-in-law, Atocha, called Jeanette and asked if she could see the kids. She wanted to have some time with them, and Jeanette was trying to support the children's connection to Luis and his family, so she said yes. Jeanette drove them over there and had her friend and co-worker Monique go with her. Jeanette parked down the street a bit, and then they all walked up to the apartment building. Monique waited out front while Jeanette took the kids up to Atocha's second-floor apartment. She saw Jeanette kiss the kids goodbye, speak with Atocha in Spanish, and then Jeanette screamed as she was yanked into the apartment. She cried out for Monique to call for help. 
Monique had left her cell phone in Jeanette's car, so she had to run down the street to get to her phone. And as she ran back to the apartment, she called 911. The 911 dispatcher asked where she was, but Monique was not familiar with this part of town. She had to run to the end of the street to get the cross streets from the sign, and she said she could still hear Jeanette screaming. And then the screaming stopped. Meanwhile, dispatch had another emergency call come in. This call was from Atocha's phone. The person on the other end didn't say anything at first, and it would turn out that this was Jeanette's seven-year-old calling for help. But Atocha snatched the phone away and started yelling about the woman, screamed that she needed help, and then the phone disconnected. Monique, though, was still on the line with 911 when Luis came running out of the apartment. She reported to the dispatcher where he was heading, and with him gone, Monique approached Atocha's apartment. As she walked up to the door, she realized it was cracked open a bit, and she could see Jeanette lying on the floor, face down, with blood everywhere. Atocha then appeared in front of her, holding one of the children and yelling at Monique. Monique did not know what she was saying, whether it was through shock or maybe Atocha was speaking Spanish. Who knows? She didn't know what she was saying, but she took the warning and headed back out to the street. And as she did, first responders arrived. Atocha then came out of the apartment with her hands up and yelling, I did it, I did it. Monique immediately turned to the officers and said, no, she did not. She had seen Luis running from the apartment. But even without Monique, it's not like the police believed Atocha anyway, because this occurred in Blackwell, and the police who responded were Jeanette's former co-workers. They knew immediately who had done it. Atocha was going to try to take the fall for her son, but it just wasn't going to work. It seems she may have even forgotten about the other witnesses, Jeanette's children. When the police got the kids out of the apartment and handed them to Monique for comfort, the youngest, who was three years old, told Monique she had to change her clothes because she had had an accident. She had an accident when she saw her daddy hitting mommy with a knife. Louise had murdered Jeanette by stabbing her 41 times in front of their three young children. And then he ran away, leaving them in the apartment with her body. At this point, the police fanned out through that neighborhood to see if Luis was hiding out somewhere nearby, maybe in someone's shed, maybe in someone's house. They also used the emergency notification system to text residents that a dangerous man was out on foot. But soon a tip came in that Luis was heading for Enid, Oklahoma, which is just an hour southwest of Blackwell. He was known to have family there. 
But by the time the tip came in and the police got to Enid, Luis was gone again. His aunt had left with him, heading north to Wichita, Kansas. And when the police got there, Luis was again one step ahead of them. He was on a bus headed to Juarez, Mexico. The U.S. Marshals met the bus in Juarez, but Luis wasn't on it, even though he was on the bus log as going to Juarez. The bus driver even confirmed Luis had been on the bus at some point, but it was possible that he got off the bus during a scheduled stop and just didn't get back on. Juarez was the first stop in Mexico, so if he got off early, he would have still been in Texas. And that would make sense that Luis wouldn't have wanted to cross the border on the bus where documents would be checked, just in case there was an alert out for him. But that didn't mean to police that he stayed in Texas. It just meant that if Luis crossed the border, he did so under the radar. Luis was officially named a fugitive, but there were two arrests made for those who helped him. Nisha Niemeyer, a friend and coworker of Luis, was arrested as an accessory after the fact for getting Luis out of town. She's the person who drove him to Enid. Atocha was arrested as an accessory for lying to the police about what happened. In the meantime, the funeral for 29-year-old Jeanette Reyna was held by the Ponca tribe. They wanted to honor her for her work and her dedication to helping Native women. While Luis was still on the run in July 2014, Atocha went to trial. I personally had expected to see a conspiracy to commit murder charge in there, seeing as it looked like she lured Jeanette to her apartment, knowing that her son was there. But the state only charged her for her actions after the murder, including rinsing off the knife, claiming she killed Jeanette, and then lying to the police about where Luis went. Atocha was convicted and given 20 years in prison. She appealed both the verdict and the sentence, and she said the sentence was excessive. But sentencing guidelines for this charge range from five years to 45 years. So while 20 years wasn't exactly a light sentence, it could have been worse. She lost her appeal and stayed in prison even as her son was living his life freely somewhere. The coworker, though, took a deal for a 10-year suspended sentence, meaning she wouldn't serve any time in prison as long as she stayed out of trouble and if she testified against Luis, if and when he was located. That if and when seemed to be a question mark for the family, who wondered if the police were doing enough to look for him. It wasn't until November 2018, five years after Jeanette's murder, that the U.S. Marshals added Luis Frias to the 15 most wanted list and offered a reward for $25,000 for his whereabouts. A couple of months later, In Pursuit with John Walsh covered the case at the request of the Marshals, 
and it is the most in-depth coverage this case has ever gotten. The episode aired in the U.S. in early January 2019, and it did yield some promising leads. But it was after the international airing in late January that a viewer in Guadalajara, Mexico, sent in a tip that they believed Luis was in the area, living under a fake name. The tip was not just specific, but also detailed, which helped the marshals pin down Luis's location. On February 7th, 2019, Luis was apprehended in Mexico. The agents cuffed him with Jeanette's handcuffs from her time in Blackwell. While Luis did not fight extradition, he did try to fight being turned over to Kay County. He wanted to stay in federal custody because, as he told the judge, he was in fear for his life. Everyone in Kay County knew and had worked with Jeanette, and he was worried an officer or a guard would try to get revenge. The judge, however, denied his request. From this point on, the case was quickly resolved. About six weeks after his arrest, Luis pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, and he pleaded no contest to conspiracy to commit murder. Since he was going to get a life-without-parole sentence or the death penalty on that murder charge, you might wonder why it matters that he pleaded no contest rather than guilty on the conspiracy charge. And that answer lies with his mother, Atocha. The theory behind the conspiracy charge was that Atocha had allured Jeanette to the apartment for Luis to then murder. If he pleaded guilty, he would be admitting that his mother had conspired with him, and it sounds like he was not willing to do that. By pleading no contest, he was saying that the state had enough evidence to convict him, but he wasn't going to concede guilt, and he also was not going to concede that his mother knew what was going to happen that day. The judge accepted both of these pleas. Luis was then expected to testify at this hearing about what happened. According to him, he was only there to talk to Jeanette about their relationship. He wasn't planning on things turning violent. He said she came inside and he closed the door. And then he apparently got so enraged that he grabbed a knife from the kitchen and began stabbing Jeanette. He said Atocha actually tried to stop him, grabbing and pulling at him so hard that she tore his shirt. He knew he stabbed Jeanette a lot, but he didn't know how many times. Louis said he then ran from the scene through the woods until he got to his friend and left town. Luis cried as he told his story and he apologized for killing Jeanette, saying he would trade places with her if he could. The district attorney then had the opportunity to ask Luis a few questions and he pushed at parts of Luis's story that contradicted or danced around what Monique had said happened. Like how Luis said he closed the door when Jeanette stepped inside. 
he wasn't clear that he closed the door because he was actually hiding behind it. But through questioning, Luis admitted he was, in fact, hiding behind the door. Luis also had said that Jeanette stepped into the apartment, whereas Monique said she was pulled inside. When asked about this, Luis said he couldn't remember. After this, the victim impact statements were given. Monique, who was there at the time Jeanette was killed, said one day she would forgive Luis, but that day was not here yet. Jeanette's sister-in-law, Lindsay, spoke on behalf of the family, saying Jeanette was trying to get out of the relationship while still being fair to Luis with access to the children, and he took advantage of that to attack her. She spoke about the children and how they lost both of their parents that day, but that Jeanette was in heaven where she was out of reach of Luis's stalking and abuse. Lindsay also read a statement from Jeanette's mother that read, in part, quote, My grandchildren are suffering. They fear you. I will never forgive you for what you did. And I think that touches on something we don't always think about when it comes to fugitives. The fear of the ones left behind wondering where that person is and if they'll come back and hurt them. I can only imagine the family looking over their shoulder so many times over the years, wondering if Luis was going to come back and try something to get his kids. But they wouldn't have to worry any longer because a reduced sentence was not part of Luis's willingness to plead guilty. It honestly doesn't seem like he got any deal at all because he still could have gotten the death penalty. The state, however, asked for life without parole rather than death, and that came at the request of Jeanette's family. Their sole concern was for her children. Not vengeance, revenge, eye for an eye, any of that. They wanted what was best for the children, and they thought that their father being executed would hurt them more than help. To avoid that trauma, they asked for Luis to be spared a death sentence. The same man who murdered Jeanette in front of her children just had his life spared because her family cared more about those kids than I think Luis could ever comprehend. Luis was then sent to prison for the rest of his life. Due to his guilty plea, his options to appeal are limited, and I could not find anything indicating he has filed. Less than a year after Luis was sent to prison, his mother, Atocha, was paroled early. Having served just around six years of her 20-year sentence, three things were cited as contributing to her early release. One was prison overcrowding. Another was her good behavior, and the third was her active participation in a substance abuse program. As for Ponca Tribal Victim Services, they continue serving the people of the community, not just reacting to crises, but also working on violence prevention through education. Paraphrasing from what Monique had said in her victim impact statement, they would continue the work they had done with Jeanette to keep women safe 
from men like Luis. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. <laughs>